You're listening to the latest preaching from Brixham Community Church. This series is called The Prayers of the Righteous and I took that title from the idea in James chapter 5 verse 16 that says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective and that's all of us today because we've all given our lives to Jesus and we are righteous in the eyes of God by a miracle. Against all odds he has declared us righteous. So your prayers are powerful and effective, or they certainly can be. But for this series, I thought it would be good to look at some other righteous people, see what they've prayed, pick on a few of their prayers or conversations with God and see if we can learn anything from it. And as I looked at this first one in Genesis 18, where Abraham prays for Sodom. Yeah, great place to start. Let's let's start with Sodom. Good one. Uh, and uh, I, I just thought, actually, as you look this through, there are some really good points that can be seen in this interesting story. So why don't we just um, read this, or let me read this together to you. So it's Genesis 18, verse 16 onwards. It says, When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for this sake, for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? For far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if I find 40? What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I'll not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, 
I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Well, it's first, before I get on to my points, it's what, a, what an amazing reading. You might have heard it loads of times if you've been in church for a long time. And there are points in there that have been brought out by preachers in the past. I'm, I'm being disciplined and focused on the points that I feel um, the Lord is, is leading me to talk about. And um, before I get on to those main points, um, first of all, let's just not be um, unaware of how wicked Sodom was in um, if you go back to Genesis, you can't do that on your sheet, but if you've got a Bible, if you were able to go back to Genesis 13, it says now that in chapter 13 and verse 13, it says, now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. And you might feel like, well, we live in a very similar time today. Uh, but these people were, this is a whole town of people really, really sinning against the Lord. Um, and then in verse 20 today, what we just read, it says, The Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous. Now, all sin grieves God because, you know, it separates us from him. But this is sin that is so grievous. And we can read of some of the grievous things that were going on when you read the story of Lot and his daughters. And if you go back and research some of that, you can see um, the kind of, base culture that was there in the city of Sodom and God saw fit to just wipe all of that out um, almost in the same way that he did when he chose to flood the world it was just wickedness and it's just best to get rid of it um, but there's a few other scriptures outside of Genesis and, and I've only picked two that I've got in front of me here uh, that show that Sodom was actually then used afterwards as a, as a kind of benchmark for wickedness um, if you're as bad as Sodom, that is just pretty bad. So um, in, in Isaiah 3, chapter 9, it says, The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. Right, so Sodom's there used as a benchmark. It's that bad. They parade their sin like Sodom. Um, they do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. And then in Lamentations 4, 6, again, Sodom is used as a benchmark for wickedness, a measuring line. Uh, the punishment of my people is greater than that of Sodom. And that's, that's like a huge thing to say, um, that, that the writer is saying about Israel, to, to say that the, the wickedness is worse than Sodom, um, which was overthrown in a moment without a hand turned to help her. So Sodom's used as a benchmark for wickedness. It's known as a wicked place. And God is a God of justice. We sometimes sit uncomfortably with this and we have to live with this tension in our hearts that God is a God of justice and he, he must punish evil. He cannot abide, literally live with, evil. And evil must be judged at some point or another. And I guess sometimes, um, you know, if you're a parent or you're a teacher or you've been in some sort of management system uh, or position sorry you'll you'll know sometimes you just need to nip things in the bud before they get worse you stop bad behavior before it spreads and sometimes to wipe out an entire city actually is doing the world a favor before um before the malaise spreads 
further. But God is a God of judgment. And so in our reading today in verse 20, the Lord says the outcry is so great that he's going to go down and see for himself. Um, which is a little bit of interesting personification for a God who knows everything. But it's, it's almost like um, God is thinking out loud so that Abraham can, can follow God's train of thought, which is an incredible privilege for Abraham. So let's look at Abraham's prayer. Six quick points that I thought were very helpful for me in my prayer life. Number one, Abraham's prayer was based on relationship with, with God. In, in Genesis 15, it says that the Lord made a, a covenant with Abraham. Abraham was able to speak to God because God had made a covenant with him. Not anyone could approach God in this way. And in James 2 and 23, it says that Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as, as righteousness and he was called God's friend. Wow. So out of that friendship, Abraham felt he had the liberty to speak to God on behalf of a city. We have a friendship with God also. And like Abraham, our prayers need to be based on that relationship with God. If, if, you, if you're listening, uh, either online or in this room, and you've got something in your life that is sinful and it's causing a barrier between you and God, then you might find that when you deal with that sin, your prayers get through. And in fact, it might, you might find that your prayers change tone as well and change direction. Also in our passage, it says Abraham, in verse 22, it says Abraham remained standing before the Lord. I like that verse. I like the idea that Abraham, in verse 22, when the other guys went off um, to do their business, um, the Lord remained and Abraham was able to remain standing in the presence of God. We too are able to do the same. Abraham had a covenant with God and so do we. In fact, our covenant is better than Abraham's. It says in the book of Hebrews, Abraham's covenant is obsolete and ours is new and fresh and, 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 and brings far more liberty. So Abraham was able to stand before God because of the covenant they had in Genesis 15. But we're able to stand before God because Jesus shed his blood, tore the veil between us and God, and we have direct access to the throne room of grace. Do we use that privilege and I use the word use carefully. Do we make best of that privilege that we have in having full access to God? And then when you go to verse 23 in our passage on your sheet, it says Abraham approached God. We also have the ability out of relationship through Jesus. We have the ability, the privilege and I even dare say the right to stand before God and to approach God. And yet sometimes we're aware, sin consciousness comes in, we're aware of things we've done wrong, things we should have done, things we shouldn't have done. And we approach God and we scratch and grovel at his door. And, and sometimes that's appropriate because of our behaviour being so bad. But God just wants to open his arms like the father did to the prodigal son and welcome us into his presence through the blood of Christ. We have access. We can enter boldly into his presence so let your prayers be bold because of what Jesus has done if you feel like you're not worthy to enter into God's presence you're actually undermining what Jesus did on the cross mm -hmm. you're making light of what he did 
You're saying Jesus' blood wasn't enough. You're saying his death and resurrection, well, I'm not sure I fully believe that, or I'm not living like it's true. You have access. This is what grace is. It's not anything you've earned. You can stand before God. Abraham knew it, and his covenant was inferior to ours. It says so in the Bible. So we should know it too. Second point. Despite that, and I love this being the next point, um, because it just brings that balance in place. Abraham was really humble. You know, God is awesome. God is mighty. God is a God of judgment. And that actually accentuates how amazing it is we can stand before him. But it's also important that when we do stand before him, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it's wise to fear the Lord in the right possible sense, in the sense of not fearing man, not fearing people, but fearing God, respecting and revering who he is. How amazing that he does open his arms to us when we realise how, how awesome he is and we should have that sense of humility. Just on our reading this, this evening, picking out a few verses, verse 27, he says, Then Abraham spoke up again, Now I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. You know, and, and I don't hear many of us say that in church, you know, Lord, we're just dust and ashes and we come before you. And in a sense, there is a way in which we don't have to speak like that because Jesus took all that punishment for us. But there's a humility there. There's a, there's a respect. Uh, the writer in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, said, said, God is in heaven and I'm on earth, so I'll let my words be few. And I'm not going to waffle on to God like some verbose um, priest who knows all the answers. I'm going to be humble before God. Let's remember who he is. Let's remember how, although Jesus is my best friend, God the Father is an awesome judge, creator, sustainer of the universe. Um, he says in verse 30, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. Again, he says it in 32, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. He's fearful of, of, of um, displeasing God with his prayers. I think we need to come humbly before God. When we do actually come to pray, and even when we come to pray tonight, we need to be in awe of the fact that we can come before a majestic, powerful, awesome God. Our third point is that his prayer was rooted in compassion for people. And um, as I was reading it, I, I, I wanted to, and I will do, I'll go off into this idea of, of our prayer for the lost. And um, then I thought about it and realised that Abraham was, wasn't even praying for Sodom. He was praying for Lot and his family. He was just praying for the righteous, wasn't he? Um, so there's kind of this difference, I feel, that Abraham was, was as, I, as I choose to read it, Abraham was just praying for the righteous to be saved. Yeah, wipe out the wicked, that's fine, but save the righteous and be a God of justice and honesty and, and you know, be the God that you, we know you are. Um, and so it's right that you wipe out the, the unrighteous. And he was just praying on behalf of the righteous and we should do that. But I would like to extend that and say God loves sinners and he, he wants us to pray for the unrighteous too. Abraham's prayer, though, was rooted in compassion for people. A sense of justice meant that he didn't want to see the righteous punished. But it's also possible that he anticipated the judgment that was to follow. Now, if you were able to skip forward one chapter, Genesis 19, 24 to 25, God is true to his word. Genesis 19, 24. Then the Lord rained down burning sulphur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. 
Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. So it's possible Abraham could, could see what was going to happen. He's, he's fearful of, of God's wrath and what that means for the righteous. But we should also be praying as Christians for those who are not Christians because that is the kind of punishment that is waiting for those who don't accept Christ. The same way that, that Abraham saw that judgment of the wicked, and this is part of the gospel we sometimes like to cover over and make uh, easy just to, to not talk about too much, but it's all through the New Testament that there is judgment for those who don't accept Jesus. In, and I just picked one scripture to illustrate this. In 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 8 to 9, it says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's accepting Jesus as your saviour who died for your sins, who don't obey that, that, that truth. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. That's a terrible, terrible fate for those who don't know Jesus. And that's why we should be praying not just for the righteous, but also for the unrighteous. Because there's people in our world, and everyone in this room will know somebody who hasn't accepted Christ as their saviour. And you will know someone that you love, that you love, and they haven't accepted Christ as their saviour. And the stark reality, I'm not telling you this, the Bible's telling you that they're going to meet a horrible end when they die. And that's not something I want to say, but I've just got to preach the full gospel, haven't I? I've got to preach the whole truth. We need to be praying for those people in a way that has a sense of urgency and love because we know that God loves them even more than we do. And um, I've written down a few things here that I find about praying for the lost to be difficult. Three things. Number one, I find praying for the lost difficult and I'm thinking of someone in particular right now, actually, who I know I should be praying for more or feel like I want to be praying for more, uh, and I'm not doing. Um, number one, there's a spiritual enemy at work to, to thwart our prayers. I just believe that sometimes the enemy just doesn't want us to pray because just as God heard the outcry, remember in our story, God's heard this outcry against Sodom and then he's going to do something about it. God hears the cry of your heart. And there is an enemy who knows that God listens to the outcry and responds. As we see in this passage, he responds. He responds to Abraham. And the enemy doesn't like that. And he will do any trick in his book to stop me praying for my unsaved friend, relative, neighbour, whoever. Number two, reason it's hard to pray for the lost. We may feel like giving up when things don't change. You know, I'm sure we've all been there. And there may be even people who you've been praying for better than I have for the people I pray for. And you don't see change. We're going to learn about, from Abraham today, about how to be persistent. Because that's what he was, wasn't he? He kept coming back to God. Six times, in fact, he went to God. And my third reason I find it difficult is it's, it's easier to have a heart for loving Christian brothers and sisters. <laughs> Let's be honest. And actually, there's nothing wrong with that. And... I'd like to kind of say, well, if you find it hard to pray for the lost, at least start with praying for your loving Christians and brothers and sisters. And as God blesses them, pray that that blessing will just show to others. I mentioned earlier, before I started properly, that um, by this will all people know 
that we're his disciples by the way we love each other, pray for each other and care for one another. And that in itself can be a great witness. That's part of God's plan that, that we're recognised by the outside world by our love for one another. So great, pray for the righteous, go for it. Um, but if we're not praying about people who are going to meet an eternal destruction, we're not entirely praying in line with God's heart because God does love the unbeliever. He does love people and um, unfortunately they have free will. And so we're just going to keep praying to God about those situations. Um, so we're going to pray for the righteous in the city. I always also notice that in Proverbs 11, 10, it says, um, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. So it's good to pray for the righteous, isn't it? It's good to pray for people in the churches in Brixham and pray for prosperity because it's good for the city, it's good for the town. Um, and that will have an evangelistic effect. The more we stand before God, though, the more I get in his presence, the more I get this right and carve out time for him, and the more I choose to tune into God while I'm driving rather than tune into some rubbish radio, um, the more I get before God, the more I stand before him and approach him like Abraham did, the more I, his heart rubs off on me. The more you spend time with someone, the more they rub off on you. And the more I spend time with Jesus, the more like him I become. And Jesus cared for the sinner. He cared for the lost. And that's the, the characteristics I want to adopt. My fourth point is that Abraham knew God's character and he prayed in line with God's character. Look at verse 25 again. Far be it from me, sorry, far be it from you to do such a thing. Abraham knows who God is. He knows God and he knows far be it from God to do such a thing. He knows that God is a God of justice and he prays in line with God's character. I find that useful. I find that helpful. When I'm praying for things, I think about who God is. And sometimes it's good just to start with praise. Start with just praising God for who he is. And as I start to open my mind to who God is and what his character is, I start to see how he would see the situation I'm going to pray for. Far be it from me to do... For, for, sorry, I keep saying that. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous with the wicked alike. Far be it from you, he repeats. Will not the judge of all the earth, Abraham knows who God is, Will he not do right? He knows that he's a judge and he knows he's a righteous judge. And he, he keys into that in his prayer. And I recommend that to you as, you as you have needs, as you have worries, you have wants, you have desires, you have problems. Start with, with a bit of just praising God for who he is. Think, get, open the Psalms and start to look at, at how the psalmist described God and start thinking about who he is. And then use those attributes of God and apply them to the situation you're praying for. I need guidance, Lord. And the Bible says, the Lord is my shepherd. God, you're my shepherd. You're going to lead me. You're going to guide me. And, and you start to pray into who his character is. And you're praying from the words of the Bible itself. God's word, speaking it back to him. It's got to be powerful. Abraham knew God's character and he used that in his prayer. Fifthly, um, he was persistent. And so just to look at some of the bits in verses 24 to 32, he goes back to God six times. First of all, what if there are 50? And then what if, uh, what if it's uh, five less than 50? Then it's 40. 
Um, may the Lord not be angry, but what if it's 30 and there's six times he makes his request to God? And, and some people debate, debated, why did he not stop there? Why, did, <laughs> why don't you just whittle it down, get it down to one? You know, um, That's a mystery that we can ask another day. Maybe he just knew <laughs> he'd, spent his, he'd spent his tokens. <laughs> that was it. Um, it actually says the Lord left, I think. So maybe, <laughs> maybe God's just said, um, when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, that's actually interesting. Maybe that's our answer. Um, God decides when the conversation's over. Uh, the last verse on our snippet, when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, not when Abraham had finished speaking with the Lord. I like that, actually. Um, but anyway, he, he goes six times. He's persistent. It's a little bit audacious. It's a little bit cheeky. Uh, but God doesn't rebuke him for it. He, he just responds every time. Um, and I think that's a wonderful thing about his character. And we'll look at that in our last point, that God listened. But... Um, I wanted to remind you that Jesus encourages such persistent prayer too. He told a parable in, uh, in Luke 18 to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And, and here it is. A certain, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. There was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. Now we've just seen how God is a just judge, and Abraham knew that and we know that. And so it's almost by way of contrast, if an unjust judge will respond to persistency, how much more our Heavenly Father? He goes on, Jesus goes on to say, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, not the widows who the judge doesn't care about, but you're his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night. Sometimes you can't sleep at night and you you wake up and you've got something on your mind and you you just have to cry out to God and then in, and, and I know someone in this room calls it the night watch I've been doing the night watch and um, and then they're crying out in the day as well he hears your cry be encouraged there are reasons he doesn't answer straight away multiple reasons that we don't understand some of them we do understand some of them we don't but just keep crying out because he hears don't give up Jesus told this parable specifically so that you wouldn't give up. It says so at the top of the parable. The reason for telling the parable was so that you would always pray and not give up. Jesus goes on, um, will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. Well, that's in God's timing, isn't it? However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What a nice ending to the parable. Because I think the fact that you did pray persistently showed faith. Because you can pray once or twice and give up. But the prayer of faith is sometimes the one that prays night and day and continues until something changes. The final point I wanted to point out to you was that God listened. Thank the Lord. And every time Abraham went back, I said he went to him six times, every time God answered. What a wonderful model for prayer this is. 
This story is in the Bible for a reason and I believe it helps us to model our conversation with God. It's, it's not a one-time event. And when you go back to God, sometimes you modify your prayer because you've had some time to think. Some people think Abraham uh, went back to God days later. It might have not all happened in the same time. There's nothing in the Bible to say in either way. But there's a possibility God and Abraham were having this, uh, this dialogue over time. But God always listened. And that's because, and in this case, it's because God loves sinners. He didn't really want to destroy all of those people. And I think God was setting some of this up um, just to teach Abraham some, some important lessons. In fact, the, the beginning that I read that might have seemed irrelevant at the very beginning of the passage, um, God starts talking to himself if you like shall i hide from abraham because he's going to be a great nation and his children are going to be blessed um, and it's almost as if god's saying i'm not going to hide this from abraham i'm going to teach him something here because i've got great plans for him i want him to see how to dis how, how to discuss things with me how to talk to me um, and i want him to know that i listen and as god listens you need to know that God listens when you pray for the lost because God does love sinners. It says in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't want your unsaved neighbour to perish. In fact, it says in 1 Timothy 2.4, he wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And in 2 Peter 3.9 it says the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some, under, as some understand slowness. Instead he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. He wants people to repent but as I said earlier unfortunately they have free will. So when we pray for our neighbours, our friends and our family to come to Christ we are praying in the will of the Father. Because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. To, to repentance. So let's be persistent. And looking back at that parable of the persistent widow, thinking about those, that last line that Jesus sort of finishes the whole parable with this itchy, awkward punchline. However, when the Son of Man comes, when Jesus comes back, will he find faith on the earth? I pray that he'll find faith in me if he comes back today. I pray that he'll, he'll, he'll or I, I do my, it's not just praying, is it? I'm not just going to pray that he does. I'm going to do my best to get before God, to stand before God, to approach God and to be persistent knowing that he listens. As we begin looking at some of the prayers in the Bible over the next few times we meet, let's encourage one another to continue to pray to God in faith that he does listen especially when we come to him out of relationship like Abraham did with his covenant relationship, in humility, and when we pray for others in line with his character and his will, and when we continue praying persistently. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit brixham.church.